Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. So tell me, David, are you ready to make a 20-light-year trip? Where? Where well, are we they, going? Oh, to the new planet. That's right. Is there chocolate there? I don't know. They say it probably has water on it, that the temperature would be within a range that would support life. And I assume if you have life, you have chocolate. Electricity? Sure. What do you mean, sure? I don't know. Do you know that there's, do we have services, postal delivery, internet, babes, chocolate? You know, I mean. Well, babes and chocolate will do it for me. Yeah, but man cannot live by babes and chocolate alone, Jim. Right, we have to have hamburgers and French fries and mashed potatoes. Whoa, whoa, potatoes? Yeah, hamburger. You can keep the beef hamburgers. Turkeys, though. Turkey burgers are good, yes. Turkey burgers are are very good. So they have all these things there? Well, is it planet green? For example, our website is now green, you know. We have a (laughs) logo on thepowercast.com that says this site is green. And why is it green? It's because why? we use DreamHost certified green hosting, and they claim to be green. They claim to be carbon neutral. Why are they carbon neutral? Because they paid a bribe to some company that says they're going to do something in Africa that will preserve the environment. They're doing the Al Gore shtick. All right. Well, hey, there's nothing wrong with saving the environment, but maybe the environment doesn't want to save us, though. You ever consider that possibility? Well, we're thinking of Mother Earth saying, you know what? I don't like what my kids are doing. They have to be punished. Well, I, I've i thought a lot about that topic, and I've come up with some really weird theories that are even potentially too weird for the Paracast, so we won't talk about them. But well, I in general, that, nothing is well, too weird for the Paracast. No, I mean, after, no. That's after we true. had that dude the other week who received oh, yeah. information about extraterrestrials, illogical science, and lucid dreams, I guess I could believe anything. You know, I, I'll tell you something about that. It's not even that Mr. Julian based the idea that he was getting all this stuff telepathically from aliens. It was the fact that when asked, well, where do these things come from? Oh, here, there, oh, then, now. It seems to me that if you're going to be talking to something, you want to know who you're talking to and where they're from. It would be one of my first questions. Where are you from? When are you from? What are you? It doesn't seem to me like Eric ever asked those questions. The way that he skated around the the question, the way that he sort of didn't tell us where they're from, because, well, they could be from any number of places. Ooh, I don't know. If I was getting information from someone, I'd want to have some idea of the source, but but that's me. And also, I want to know whether that source is telling me the truth. Just because somebody comes to you in a dream and says, I am Fred Anderson from Apple Computer or from Libra, the Libra star system, I came here in a stargate because it takes too long to travel 120 trillion miles or whatever it is. So I came here in the stargate, and I want you to write this book about extraterrestrial science. Okay, not backdating stock options, Mm -hmm. extraterrestrial science. And now you write the book. And I'd say, how do I know you are who you claim to be? Because you have great powers. You can come to me in a dream or you could lift me up over my bed seven feet and threaten to drop me if I don't listen to you. How do I know you're telling me the truth? You don't know. And this is something that. We've seen on the forums, there are a couple of members of our forums that are responding to things like the Ari Ghost story saying, well, I think this is all made up. How do you know this happened? Did you speak to any of the people he supposedly cured? Have you met any of them? And actually, yeah, I did meet a couple of them. My father spoke to them because he was interviewing them, but 
Yeah, I did meet some of these people. And it's not like this was an unknown thing in South America that this guy was doing these essentially miraculous things uh, in Brazil. But ultimately, Gene, you don't know who's telling you the truth about anything. And I think it's important to state that because in, in today's world, look at the United States political situation. I mean, God knows. Do, do you know? Do I know what our government's really doing? Do you believe anything the government tells you at this point? I know I don't. Um, not so for a moment because no. the government, and I sometimes think it's not just deliberate deception. It is because people who are hired in many government positions get there because they supported the right political candidates. Sure. Sure. And they get their jobs, and they don't know what they're doing. They absolutely don't know what they're doing, so why should I trust them with my <laughs> doing life? a terrific job, Brownie. Sure. Yeah, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And at this point, I don't want to sound paranoid. It's not like you shouldn't believe anything anyone tells you, but everything should be taken with a grain of salt. And look, we talk to a lot of people on this show, Gene, and we don't know who's telling us the truth or who isn't. We don't have a polygraph test running at all times, and even if we did. The polygraph is not particularly reliable. You, you have to use whatever deductive reasoning and logical skills you have as a human being to cut through the crap and to try to figure out what's real. And ultimately, we are all creatures of our culture. We're all preconditioned to one extent or another to believe certain things. Even those of us who like to think we're objective, we, we don't live outside of ourselves. We are who we are. And a set of experiences got us here. So ultimately, you really have to fall back on your intuition and on your life experiences. And I think it's very important to make that statement. It's my, my life experiences that brought me to do the show with you. And I've seen a lot of weird stuff in my life. I've also seen charlatans at work and everything in between. So I think I have some sense, speaking for myself, of what's genuine and what perhaps isn't. And then, of course, the huge gray area in between, the stuff that... You put in the gray box because you're not sure. But I think the problem in this field is that people, well, it's like the ET question. And we're going to have a great time talking about today with Mac Tonys because he's writing a book postulating not a new theory about what the source of a lot of these creatures and craft might be. But I think the way that he's thinking about it and the fact that he's brave enough to explore this topic really tells me that maybe there is an opportunity to change the tone of the discussion. There needs to be some new blood in this field. Stan Friedman is fantastic, but when we try to talk to him about interdimensional beings, he just wouldn't have any of it. Shuts it down. It, it shuts it down completely. It doesn't fit into his preconceived notions of what these things are. And again, we took a lot of heat for the Eric Julian interview on the forums and in private emails. Uh, you know, why did we have him on if we know that he was bogus? You know, why didn't we hit him harder about stuff? And, and I think it is important to speak to a wide range of people. I think that's critical. But ultimately, you and I are human beings, too. We have our preconceived notions about things to some extent. I mean, I'm trying to be open-minded about these topics. But, but at the same time, what our listeners have to understand is that you and I are both native New Yorkers. We were brought up in an environment where essentially there's so much crap flying around. Uh, you have to learn how to be hard about looking at the world. You, you sort of just for issues of survival. It's really important to try to cut through the noise really quickly. And every now and then, yeah, you'll make some mistakes. And every now and then there might be a chunk of truth that flies by you that you didn't see. We're, we're just human beings, Gene, and we're not getting some big paycheck to do this. So ultimately, uh, 
we we do this out of love, and uh, love can sometimes lead you down the wrong path. Like that's <laughs> never happened before. <laughs> Indeed, it hasn't happened at all. I can't say yeah, that's ever happened right. to me. I can just list the ways, especially between the first marriage and the second marriage. And I ran into a couple of dead ends there. I won't yeah. go into those details. You really don't want to hear about it. <laughs> but we do want to question the conventional wisdom, because sometimes that's the way to find the truth. And Mac Tony's has a lot of things to say that do question certain types of conventional wisdom. And he'll be joining us next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Mac, looks like if we can make a 20-light-year trip, as I was saying to David earlier, we could see the first possibly habitable planet in our intergalactic neighborhood. What was your feeling about this? Well, I, I knew it was inevitable. I mean, it's something I've been waiting for. I knew that this was something, an exoplanet that, you know, so far all the ones we found have been too far away or too close or, or big hot Jupiters, as they call them, because they're, you know, generally bigger than Jupiters, considerably bigger than Jupiter and, and very close to the sun, which is kind of weird in its own way, because it's not what we see in our own solar system, all the gas giants, you know, lined up in the back row. So I knew we I knew we eventually find one, but this one came a little sooner than I expected. And now that we found this one, I think I think that ups the um, the stakes in the race to find something even better. So that's why I'm excited. Uh, I think we'll find something. The terrestrial planet finder scopes, whether we use those or not, 
I think we'll find something that, that we have a chemical signature in the atmosphere that we know that the air is breathable or not. We won't have to rely on the proximity to the parent star. And the fact that it's a, a I think, what is it, a red um, dwarf? star? Yes, I think yes. so. That's what I recall. Uh, yes. That doesn't bother me too much. It's still an energy source. And if it's icy, it has water without sounding megalomania. I think I can guarantee there'd be life there. Guys, it just seems very, very likely that that's a, a place where life would, would take hold. But it's not Zeta Reticuli. No, it's not. Probably not going to find intelligent life there, but... Uh, I mean, I wouldn't expect, hey, odds are you're not going to find a planet with intelligent life your first try, your first first time you find a... We've been trying to do it on Earth for a long planet. time, right here on Earth. We've been trying to find intelligent life. We haven't done very well. I wanted to no. mention to our listeners, though, seriously, that we don't actually see this planet. We kind of infer its existence by how the star reacts to it. Can you maybe explain that process in a way that people who aren't astronomers would understand? Well, I, I've heard this is something astronomer. Either, but a, a good explanation is that you know you get like a flat, you get like a, well, a light bulb, and you hold a, a little something in front of it, and you can't see it because because of the glare. If you study uh, a light source in the sky, meaning a star, over a long period of time, you can you can sense perturbations in its in its wobble. You know, you can sense small, and then from there you you get your calculus and you you calculate what size object it could be. Like uh, this new planet, we have a few different options. About how big it could be. It could be. Uh, I think all the estimates point to it being bigger than Earth. But if it's but if it's icy, it could be even bigger. It would be about five times the size of Earth, which is still pretty small, you know, as far as as far as that kind of thing goes. It could still be, you know, potentially uh, habitable by by human-like beings if we chose to visit. But uh, it doesn't seem to be anything where we're going to find, you know. Big, big-headed aliens walking around. Maybe there'll be normal-headed aliens walking Maybe around. Maybe there'll be normal-headed aliens. Yeah, that hasn't been ruled out yet. Right. Well, the other thing is you're just coming closer to home, and this is something we mentioned briefly before we started recording this interview, and that is that recently they reported that, for example, on Mars that water has apparently come to the surface in recent years. It's not something that was restricted to the underground reservoirs or resources or lakes or whatever. Now, you were telling me this is nothing new, although they imply that it is something new. Underground is immediately what I thought of was the, you know, it's been kind of, that's been kind of common knowledge in the Mars anomaly underground, as it were, for all about, I remember, I remember being, you know, pretty much convinced beyond any reasonable doubt back in probably 2001. When I saw these things, in fact, uh, a guy named Ephraim Palermo and and a woman named Jill England did a little study of these, and they managed to catch one in the, well, not not in the act, but they caught one before and after. Uh, they're looking at spacecraft images. They found one where it was there was nothing, and then the next picture there's this big dark seat, and of course these things fade over time, uh, as would be expected. And so it seems like there's water not only coming out of the ground and forming a forming a temporary little stream on the surface. But sometimes the water is so dark that it almost makes you want, NASA hasn't gotten around to really addressing this, but sometimes the water is so dark that it makes you wonder if perhaps there's something else in that water, some sort of uh, pigment, you know, some sort of signature of an organic process taking place under the, under the surface. That's the kind of idea I kind of play around with in, the, in my book on Mars. In fact, I might have even mentioned that in there. I don't, I don't remember now. Well, just to recap, because it's, it's we've heard new. these things, yeah, we've heard so many of these Martian mysteries and lunar mysteries of the stuff we've heard from different people on various paranormal radio shows 
which ones stand a chance of being true? I would say, for my money, the features in Cydonia, and and I'm not necessarily including the face on that one. There are a number of small, uh, bright objects that uh, really need to be looked at uh, closer because of their very definite mathematical relationship to each other, or I should say apparent mathematical relationship to each other. And I'm not referring to Hoagland's analysis here. Not that there isn't necessarily anything to that, but I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of dubious. But there are a number of, of features in Cydonia that in in relationship to each other that statistically strike me as pretty unlikely. And that's just one little area on Mars. There are others, but I definitely think that that region deserves a closer look. And I'd, I'd be really, really interested to get... Well, we just had the face re-imaged uh, maybe a week or so ago by the high-rise instrument aboard the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And it really doesn't show us anything that the other ones look... that the other images from uh, lower-resolution cameras showed us. That was kind of disappointing, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's the best you can do. If, if some of the other images I've seen are any indication, I think we can do better and get, and get some higher-resolution images. Barring that, it's we're going to have to go there in person. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, yes, but it's going to take a long time to get here. I just feel so disappointed with all the promise of the space program in the late 60s and early 70s. We've just let this thing go to waste. I just read an interesting article about propulsion. It's using, I believe, microwave lasers. And uh, you can get to Mars in a month with one of these. The guy's already built the material. And uh, the problems were the, thing, the, the earlier versions of this material would bake under the heat and get frayed, I guess. And uh, the, new, the new structure doesn't get really, really hot, but it doesn't uh, disintegrate. You could build a craft you know, using technology pretty much what we have now. But if you build a, a sail big enough and put some sort of a laser generator in Earth orbit, you could propel this thing. And... Not only would you get there in a month, which is considerably faster than almost a year, it would delay the effects of radiation. And that's a big concern of NASA's radiation sickness and exposure to cosmic rays and all that. So, so that's a possible solution. Whether that's the one we'll take, I have no way of knowing. Yeah, but how would we get back? Yeah, good question. Uh, you can still do it. You can still, uh, you'd have to put something in. Uh, braking is always the, it's always the hard part. It seems like yeah. you get there, you know, you can speed yourself up. Uh, they'd have to aero brake and perhaps even go back eventually. I don't know. You, know, I did, you caught me because I didn't read that far in the article. I just thought yeah. stuff. Yeah, it just seems like a problem. It's like, you know, you got the wind, the laser wind pushing you that way. Right. You'd have, to, you'd have to jettison something that would flip around and then push you from the other. I read some proposals, but it all sounds very tricky, you know. Wait, I got it. Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> it could take Rosie O'Donnell, and then she could get out of the craft, and, you know, using Newtonian physics, it'd be one hell of a push. She could push it the other way. Just all she could do is, is talk about that movie she was in with Dan Aykroyd. See, Gene usually has the ridiculous movie references, but today... Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You knew I, the name of the movie. Oh, I know the name. I know. That's pretty, pretty sad. But the trick with the Rosie O'Donnell maneuver is that you leave her in space. You don't exactly. You well, you need time. to rec- at least store the hot air. <laughs> well, that's that's the, the scientific. That's the engineering uh, advantage, guys. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. 
Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to scientific and paranormal researcher, and hopefully they do combine in some respects. Mac Tonys. David. The whole thing about water reminds me of this sort of classic cartoon panel from, I believe it was either the 60s or the 70s, where there's a crash disc in a desert, and there's an alien crawling across the sand, and you can tell he's just absolutely just dying of, of thirst, and he's reaching with his hand at me, goes, he's saying, ammonia, ammonia, <laughs> which I always thought was really clever. So we think about all life as being, you know, based on the carbon molecule and water, because that's what we know on this planet. But what are the possibilities, Mac, that life could exist elsewhere based on another molecule, based perhaps on ammonia or methane? Is that just completely ridiculous? Well, my understanding is that it's possible, and silicon has been favored as, as an example as of a chemistry, a molecule that has enough elasticity where you could get organic chemistry going with it. And uh, in this universe, as big as it is, I'd be surprised if something like that isn't around. Whether it's, whether it's predominant is another question. I, I'm kind of a carbon chauvinist when it comes to that, and I think, <laughs> I think we'll ultimately find that most of the life in our universe is carbon-based, but that's just me. I could be totally wrong. And again, I'm not a, I'm not a, well, while I'm interested in science and like to speculate a lot, I'm not wholly ignorant. I'm far from uh, a Carl Sagan on this kind of thing. So right. that's just kind of a gut feeling, you know, kind right. of an educated gut feeling perhaps. But. Well, the thing about water, I mean, what we know is that the two atoms that make up water, hydrogen and oxygen, seem to be fairly common throughout our galaxy and certainly throughout the universe. Why is it so surprising to people that we would find water elsewhere? Yeah, that's a good one. In the case of Mars, uh, I think it just it drags the argument for life, uh, kind of kicking and screaming closer to the closer to the uh, public eye. And sure, NASA has this very long-lasting and kind of unusual reticence to even to address issues of, of life. They haven't really gotten into that since the Viking landers in the 1970s, which is a shame because they justify their mission, their, their Mars program is the search for life on Mars. And they really haven't done any of that. The last time anyone searched for life on Mars was the Beagle 2 lander. And they crashed, and that was then that was the European probe. So the closer we get to acknowledging water on Mars, and the closer we get to, to acknowledging flowing water on the, on the surface of Mars, LS, uh, mm-hmm. that drags the biology argument behind it. It's pretty much uh, it's pretty much unavoidable that people are going to start ask, asking questions about the, the feasibility of life. It's really interesting if you look at the history of the whole life on Mars inquiry. You've got you've got this optimism at the very beginning, and then we send our probes, and then it's just relegated to almost a lunatic fringe that possibility of life on Mars. And now it's becoming a little sexier, but I, I'm not sure NASA knows how to spin it quite yet. 
I think there's still kind of, you know, I mentioned that this whole finding of liquid water on the surface it wasn't really anything new. You know, independent investigators had, had cited the same evidence. It's almost as if NASA is kind of, oh, just dropping the AD here and there and to see how it to see how it fares, to see what kind of survival rate it has. And, uh, you know, I, I predict that probably within the next four to five years we'll, we'll get another little drop in the bucket and we'll go from there and we'll, you know, we'll see how it, and we'll see how the public, uh, we'll see how long it takes until the public starts demanding answers to some to some of these questions. Do you and think there's any deliberateness with regard to these revelations that they're slowly conditioning us? This is the conspiracy theory. We're being slowly yeah. conditioned to expect more and more information about life in outer space until they drop the ball and say, well, hmm. Yeah, well, that also makes some sense from their point of view, and it wouldn't necessarily be a conspiracy in the in the X Files sense. It could be more of a more of an academic conspiracy. They might not even realize they're doing it. But I have to admit that the the, the rate in which they divulge this stuff is kind of like a time release aspirin, you know. And so, you know, it's possible. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rule that one out. They could be kind of collectively uh, realizing that well, we can't we can't just drop the ball and or the bomb rather and and, um, and, and tell everyone that there's you know the probability of life is actually significant uh, because then people will demand um, either a manned mission or more funding for life experimentation. And with JPL, I, as I mentioned before on the show, I think uh, they don't have any biologists on the team. You know, it's, it's just amazing. It's geologists, and and they run the show, and they, they just want to look lose. for rocks. They don't really know how to cope with actual yeah. living things. Right. I got an email from uh, from somebody the other day, actually, and it's pictures of orbit showing these, uh, you know, this tree-like terrain, forested-looking terrain on the surface of Mars. And, and the message was, "Why doesn't NASA acknowledge this?" And I said, "Well, first of all, I'm not convinced. It's I'm not convinced we're looking at trees." I said, "Second of all, it could be, but NASA might literally not even realize it. It's, it would be so unexpected." that it would go right through their filter. Really? Unless you really think take. that? Well, maybe I'm apologizing for NASA too much. <laughs> maybe I'm being too, being too generous. But well, uh, it's possible. I mean, when you're trying to look at everything in a geological context and you have no, you have zero expectation of finding anything else, life, or let alone archaeological sites, which I think we found, then... Then yeah, I think it's possible they could go right through your filter because you're so entrapped in your own little reality tunnel. Let me ask you a question about this, Mac, because you, you said before that if we found trace evidence of life that the public would demand an explanation, they would want further inquiry. Do you really feel that's the case? And, and let me pose the question in, in this form. Let's say that tomorrow we did indeed find absolute irrefutable evidence of life on Mars, what do you think would be the reaction on the part of the masses? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I, I kind of I kind of knew that was coming because as soon as I said that, I started questioning myself on that one as far as, as how... Uh, you were writing the answer and you took out the little pad and you're making notes. Well, I think it's an important question. What 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 happens when we're confronted with that possibility? Yeah, and the public might be we might be giving the public too much credit when we assume that there'd be a demand for more uh, investigation if if NASA announced tomorrow perhaps that uh, that Mars had exhibited you know totally uh, undeniable evidence of life. I know I would like 
uh, answers more or less immediately, but that doesn't mean everyone would. The United States, unfortunately, is pretty apathetic when it comes to science, and uh, I'm glad you kind of called me on that one because um, I might be projecting my own my own desires a little bit too much onto everyone else. So whether or not there'd actually be a huge demand for and further investigate further investigation of Mars and uh, to discover what this what form this life takes, what it means, etc. Maybe NASA's goal is simply to kind of nullify the issue by make by making this parade of, of announcements, you know, in kind of an almost suspiciously time release format. Arguably, uh, is to kind of make the eventual announcement that yeah, there's life seem kind of humdrum relatively. So there's one kind of uh, kind of Hoagland-esque answer, I suppose, but uh, mm-hmm. it might be. It might be kind of close to the truth. Speaking of Richard Hoagland, we have to ask, do you support any of the stuff that he comes out with or what? Uh, Recently, I haven't been terribly uh, engaged. My little kind of pat response to that question is that I like his early, I like his early stuff because it's when he speculates, you know, he's speculating. And, uh, and recently it's, you know, everything is, everything is conveyed as, you know, this is the way it is. And I don't, I don't like that approach. I think speculation is, is, Sometimes it gets a little, I think speculation sometimes is derided when it shouldn't be, you know. I think people can dismiss it because of speculation, and I think those people are missing the point most of the time. It's a very very uh, potent intellectual tool when used correctly, and there's nothing wrong with speculating. But, so I, I hate to see people suddenly um, decide, you know, oh, we're not speculating, this is the way it is, you know, and start couching everything in these very, these very either-or quasi-scientific terms. There and are no gray are, areas. Yeah, there are no gray areas. There's lots of gray areas. There's, there's far more gray area than there is black area or white area, as people like Greg Bishop know. So people don't really see the distinctions, the gray areas anymore. It's either black or white and nothing in between. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's my impression, sadly. It's that polarization of thought. And the reason I asked you, Mac, about whether or not people would make demands is that if we see certainly inside of the United States what's going on in the political arena, the revelations that are coming out about the incredibly just heinous crimes that these this administration has committed and people just don't seem to be paying attention. They're so wrapped up in their entertainment media and their distractions that essentially you know, the, 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 the empire is falling and everybody's too busy watching television. So I, I wonder about something like a major revelation about life elsewhere. Or even at this point, if the aliens landed on the White House lawn, would it just be treated as another special on the 5 o'clock news? And that this it is would a vanish? Fox News alert. The aliens have landed on the White House lawn, but they can't find the leader. Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us 
Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Mac Tonys about scientific frontiers and the paranormal and what do you think here you think that the aliens will land on the white house lawn and nobody will care you know you've got a point i think people would care initially but our attention span is so short that it makes me wonder how how long we'd really care and how long it would become just another dreary um social issue to be um what's the word i'm looking for well, let's say, or even worse than that, let's say for about a week people are psyched, and then, of course, the negativity starts. Well, why are they really here? What do they really want? Then you'd have the right. relig- religious leaders saying, oh, these are demons. It's Satan. It's not of Christ. Yeah, you probably or, you see know, a lot of that. You probably see a lot of the same, a lot of the same yeah. themes that we see on, on cable TV uh, documentaries on, on UFOs play out in real life. That you'd probably get the, you know, the requisite debunkers uh, called in. And they wouldn't be able to actually debunk anymore, but they'd, they'd play a very similar role. And right. then you'd get the uh, the church people to get for a spiritual perspective. And I, I predicted that if that happened, it would all be pretty boring. <laughs> and that's one reason why it probably hasn't already happened. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why it probably hasn't happened. And, and it comes back to motivation. I don't think whatever the occupants of the UFOs are thinking, I don't think establishing formal contact with us is high up on the priority list. Otherwise, it probably would have happened. And even though there are conspiracy theorists that postulate that it did happen, I really haven't seen any proof of that. What I see proof of are a lot of people that want other people to believe that's the case. And that leads me to my next question, Mac. Given that you've been looking at this field for a while now and you have a real deep personal interest in it, why do you think people glom on to silly stuff? I mean, why do people believe the most ridiculous ufo photos or the most ridiculous abductee stories is it just that they want to believe in something that's some of it you know the need to believe is an oversimplification i'm reading a book right now actually called uh, alien abductions created a modern phenomenon by an english professor named terry matheson and it's uh, it's published by prometheus books and you know it's, sometimes i'm a little disappointed in their in their works because i don't uh, necessarily agree with their definition of skepticism but this is a really good one and he takes a very a very um, thorough look at the abduction literature and he concludes that we're seeing a myth in the making which isn't an original idea at all but he does a good job by looking at the literature and seeing how how the ideas how the memes have evolved over time in particular since the Betty and Barney Hill quote-unquote abduction and uh, he concludes that we're, we're seeing a myth that fulfills you know various personal and social needs and uh, in particular he thinks that we're seeing something an evolving myth that's evolved in response to our our feelings of dehumanization in the face of uh, our technological development and that's he sees he sees a great deal of, of symbolic meaning in aliens with with needles and probes sticking them into us and things like that it's, it's actually pretty good it's actually uh, quite convincing on some levels uh, I think that he's kind of out he's kind of secretly out to dismiss 
dismiss the phenomenon as an objective reality. And insofar as he kind of rejects the conventional archetype of what a of what an abduction is, he he does that. But I think that there's a weirder reality behind behind this whole issue that he you know overlooks for purposes of his thesis, and I can forgive him for that. Well, what it is also is that when it has the publisher name Prometheus on the label, people say, oh, skeptical coverage, that kind of thing. Right, right. It has that veneer of disbelief, at least it's a hardcore skeptical inquiry of something, but maybe that's not always true. Yeah, it's there are some good ones, and this is a good one. By skeptical, people think debunker, and by debunker, they think unreasoned skepticism. Paul Kimball calls them fundamentalist debunkers, I think is what, mm-hmm. he, is what he calls them, which pretty much conveys the idea there. So yeah, this, I, I think the same thing. When I see Skeptical Inquirer or Prometheus, I kind of get a little wary because I've, I've read their stuff before and uh, it's very conspicuous for someone who, you know, who kind of is familiar with the other side of the argument uh, to see what they choose to leave out, you know, very strategically and what they decide to leave in. It's very, it's very manipulative and not that, not that all the, the pro-UFO stuff is objective by any means, but you've got lots of flaws with, with uh, institutionalized quote-unquote skepticism sometimes. So the problem is here, of course, is that the UFO field itself, you have people who have their own vested belief. They come to a conclusion early on. And I'll go back, possibly because in last week's show, we had Don Ecker, who supposedly is retiring from the UFO field. And he mentioned one of his idols in UFO research was Major Donald Kehoe. Now, I met Kehoe a few times. He seemed like a nice gentleman. But he formed his UFO research opinion very early on. As soon as he got interested in the subject, began to accept the reality of the situation, he said, okay, it's spaceships. And that was the end of his speculation, the beginning and end. Spaceships, that's it, can't be anything else. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Mac Tonys about a variety of things. We started with space and Martian mysteries, and now we are extending beyond that. So, Mac, is the idea postulated in this book that all of the abduction cases that have been reported are all essentially hallucinations or deceptions of some sort? No, he he, um, he focuses on, on the books, the popular books by, uh, by uh, Strieber and uh, John Mack and David Jacobs and John Fuller, who wrote The Interrupted Journey, and Bud Hopkins. So he's careful to uh, limit his scope to just mm-hmm. the published popular books on the subject. He doesn't attempt to make any vast overarching judgment on the phenomenon in general, although, you know, you, you can kind of see his bias showing through at times. Um, but I find that forgivable in, in the way that he, because he has some interesting things to share. Here's a left field question for you about abduction experiences and UFOs. From what you've looked at in this field, what percentage of UFO experiences that people report do you suspect are legitimate? And by legitimate, I mean not human sourced, not deception, not hoaxes, but people who genuinely claim to have seen something that cannot be in any way categorized as current human technology. If you had to put a percentage number. Oh, man. Well, it would be pretty low. 
Right. But that's still, you know, it's been said before, even if only one isn't, uh, doesn't have a mundane explanation, then that's pretty portentous right there. I think once you weed out the obvious, uh, once you weed out the obvious, you know, delusions and, and, uh, and by delusion, I'm not, I'm not, uh, bragging on people who misperceptions, why a better word. But once you weed out all that stuff, it's probably, it's probably close to 5%, maybe a little higher, actually. But that adds up to a lot. That adds up to a significant portion. And that's just the ones that are reported. That's been right. noted before too. You got this. Uh, so any the UFO phenomenon as we know it is the tip of the iceberg, and not only is it the tip of the iceberg, it's the tip of the iceberg is as interpreted by uh, the narrators, the self-appointed narrators of this, who kind of fill this role of, of kind of post-industrial shaman or something like that by putting their own narrative bias on it. So we're left not really knowing what we're dealing with. We're, we're told we know. We're told it's spaceships. We're told it's aliens looking for genetic material, uh, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, there might be a grain of truth in there, even if only metaphorically, but whether that's whether that's it, you know, the public is not really left with any compelling reason to think that other than the uh, credentials of the people the people espousing those, theory, those theories. So it's a tr- think, very tricky issue. Yeah, your 5% number is actually pretty close to what I think is probably close to the number. I Often I've said it's about 2%, but that 2% really was extremely compelling. And, I mean, in that 2%, I group a number of the sightings I've had. I've, I've only talked about, really, one of them on the show, but it was a pretty major one, and it was one that had many hundreds, if not thousands, of witnesses. And that actually brings up an important point and something that you also mentioned, reports of UFOs that actually end up becoming known. I mean, there are so many sightings that for issues of culture or, and or language, for example, UFO researchers in the States never find out about a lot of the stuff that goes on in South America and has because of language barriers that have existed traditionally. I know John Nack was attempting to kind of break that down a little bit. You know, there's some interesting results from that, but definitely language barriers and a lot of it's just cognitive barriers. I know Bud Hopkins, and he wrote in Intruders that, uh, you know, he gets he gets letters from people with experiences, and if it doesn't fit his own template, I don't think he realized how important <laughs> what he was writing actually was. But, you know, if it doesn't fit his preconceived template of what's going on, then he doesn't follow up. He just discounts it. Oh. He just discounts it. Right, because it doesn't seem to be uh, real, you know. And by real, for Bill Hopkins, that's nuts and bolts, extremely nuts and bolts. And what I found is that there's this uh, very psychedelic aspect to the experience, typically, uh, that gets overlooked because, well, especially in Western ufology, if, if there is really such a thing, uh, we're very materialistic. We want an answer that, as Jacques Vallée said, we can kick the tires, you know. And that's very that's very evident with researchers like Stan Friedman. You know, it's you know it's spaceships, and he qualifies that with you know he, he's just interested in the ones that are extraterrestrial spacecraft. Others could be other things. So so he kind of has a little loophole there. But as far as all sightings being being nuts and bolts craft, you know, that's just that's kind of become entrenched, not reality yet, but in the paranormal world, that's taken as as virtual gospel. And you know, as as I mentioned, it's that's just the it's not just the tip of the iceberg, but it's the the tip of the iceberg is melted down, diluted, and <laughs> and distributed by by people who are 
in the role of, of marketing this experience for consumption. Well, they have to fit the things into boxes. I mean, that's like all human experience. It seems like when we simply try to analyze these things, the, this, the default human tendency is to put these things inside of well-labeled, understood boxes. And I think that's probably where a lot of the problems arise in that it seems like with so many, certainly UFO experiences, a lot of them incorporate what you just mentioned, psychedelic elements that really add this sort of high strangeness to them that it's almost as if this was designed in a way so that when someone reported an incident, they would either keep the high weirdness detail out because if they did, then immediately they would be they would be made fun of. Oh, well, gee, that happened? Oh, well, then forget it. And obviously you were stoned or you were asleep or you were dreaming. It's almost as if whatever is generating the experience does this on purpose to sort of sour the, the, the whole situation. Well, you're talking there, David, about packaging the sighting in a way that people can accept it. You take the details that you believe will be acceptable to most people and you withhold the stuff that's really freaky. But the really freaky stuff is the stuff that may lead us to some understanding about what's going on. I think so. What do you think, Mac? I, I agree. And it's interesting that you mentioned the, you know, the dreamlike aspects being rejected. You have to wonder if the intelligence, assuming there is one, and I think there, I think there is an intelligence of some kind, engineering is, these experiences is indeed generating the imagery that we associate with UFOs. Or if it's so weird that the human mind generates that imagery to package it to itself. Well, isn't that because also the opinion that maybe John Keel was expressing early on, that maybe our interaction with this force is taking place and below a subconscious level, if there's such a thing, that we take what we perceive and interpret it in a way that we can understand and accept and that we really do not understand the reality that we're contacting. You read books like Passport to Magonia and John Keel's Mothman Prophecies, and that's actually pretty, it becomes very attractive when you read it through the lens of authors like that, because some of this imagery is so, uh, well, another sighting that, that reminds me of that is the Flatwoods Monster. You know, this thing mm -hmm. doesn't look like, it doesn't even look like what we might expect an alien to look like. It, it looks like some sort of Victorian apparition, you know? That's right. Well, yeah. someone suggested it looked like more like a machine. There was somebody going yeah, out there and I was lecturing. That. that was interesting. It looked like, like this proto type military reconnaissance thing mm -hmm. and uh, yeah it's kind of strained and kind of after the fact that there was a little re re resemblance there mm. fate magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown keep up with the latest on angels and miracles psychic phenomena ghosts ufos life after death and much much more to receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. 
Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Begeny, and we're talking to Mac Tonys, and we're speculating and reporting and just kind of putting our heads together to try to figure out what's going on. And <laughs> I've heard some pretty crazy stories about Flatwoods that I won't even mention, but that was something that was a little bit off-center, the one where it was some kind of machine, and he tried to take the typical drawing of the Flatwoods monster, this particular author. I don't recall his name offhand. I did see him at this meeting in Las Vegas, this crash retrieval conference. And he was talking about trying to approach this as some kind of robotic device. Which isn't an unsound approach to take. You know, if we're dealing with aliens, then, you know, why, why not employ robotic devices? That's, you might argue that it's kind of like kind of like sightings of humanoids taking soil samples in the 60s when the astronauts are doing that on the moon, since we're now sending, you know, robotic probes to Mars and, and, and Saturn. But, uh, I, you know, I was speculating this, on this on my blog not too long ago that I would expect an alien technology, and by alien I mean, you know, interstellar nuts and bolts uh, visitors to use something like a nanotech smart dust, you know, some sort of distributed intelligence that we wouldn't even really uh, see and, unless we were really, really looking for it. It could be vastly superior to any sort of uh, drone or, or piloted metal saucer with little, with little beans inside. I think the fact that we're seeing a phenomenon that takes the form of apparent craft with occupants, you know, right down to portals on, on the alleged vehicles, suggests to me that we're not dealing with actual ET. I, I can't outthink what actual aliens would be up to. You can always resort to that argument that maybe they're anachronistic for purposes beyond human comprehension. Or maybe they want to, again, present themselves in a way that we understand or we go back to our minds interpreting it that way. Exactly. Right. We don't know if, that's, if we're reacting to a stimulus that's so profoundly alien that, that we're basically kind of hallucinating the, the veneer that we put on it or if it's that's engineered from the very beginning. And uh, I think in one of the last interviews I had with you guys, I, I talked about the whole uh, subterfuge angle where a lot of the dramatic sa uh, saucer sightings with the flashing lights and etc. really struck me as staged events mm -hmm. designed to promote the, the ET hypothesis. Or maybe the aliens or whatever they are laughing up their collective sleeves assuming that they wear outfits that have sleeves and saying, boy, those stupid earthlings they're going to really believe this stuff. Come on now, let's get some more portholes going on there, a little bit of smoke. Well, but we have to go to motivation here, and sure. I think what I've heard Mac talk about in other shows and write about on his blog, and, and I'm, Matt, Mac, I'm really interested to read that new book you've got coming out sometime in the future. It's almost as if what we've got is a situation where, where whatever these beings are want us to think that they're coming from far away because that makes them less dangerous to us and less less threatening. You know, if we, if we thought that these things were from another planet, they come here, then they leave, all right, we can just, like, not deal with it. If, indeed, you had a, a civilization that was perhaps indigenous to the planet at this point and were coexisting with us in some sort of a covert way, it would make sense for them, I think, to want us to think they're not from here because how badly would we freak out if we knew they were here all the time? Right. That's a good one. I, I like that because it depends on the individual's reaction. Actually, I mean, some people might find 
the idea of being visited by beings that can cross the distance between stars threatening in itself, but others would would have the the opposite reaction. If we're dealing with like an indigenous intelligence, then they're, then they're probably going for the, well, you know, if it's aliens, they'll be looking in all the wrong places and they won't be mm-hmm. as alarmed. Well, it, you can also argue conversely that it's not a matter of us being alarmed, them being alarmed. And if all was known to everyone, then they'd be the ones who would uh, would be on the on the on the wrong end of the stick there. And you know, perhaps the I mean, of being exposed and rooted out might be a very real uh, a very real fear for them. They wouldn't but want if, people to know who they were. Yeah. Well, yeah, right, but exactly. given the kinds of technology we we've seen, and I'm just thinking, guys, about the technology that I've personally seen. Um, it blows anything we have to all hell. I mean, I, I can't... Well, saw actually technology in the, in, the, in the conventional materialistic sense. You know, it, Mac, maybe your mind... I, I think so. No, think? no, no. You see, the problem here is that I'm just thinking about one sighting I had that involved thousands of witnesses where we, we saw the prototypical cigar-shaped craft huge in the sky. We saw the discs emerging from it. Um, it was all extremely physical, and a lot of people were seeing it. But so, you've got a sufficiently, a sufficiently alien intelligence of a non-nuts and bolts nature. Where do we draw the line? Where, where do we draw the line between subterfuge and reality? You know, what's, what's it capable of and, and when, when... Well, sure. When was it not capable of, you know? Right. Maybe it uh, is able to stage events that... It's, it seems to me that would be the whole point, a staging event that would seem undeniably physical to the witnesses. I'm playing devil's advocate here, obviously. No, and we can... I mean, the thing about that, of course, is that we could extend that out to the idea that anything you ever see on TV, if it's not in front of you and nope. you can't touch it, is it real? <laughs> in the age of visual effects, there's nothing that we can't create um, from scratch that is probably very convincing, very compelling. I just saw this movie, uh, Children of Men, where there's this baby in the movie, and apparently the baby was all CG. I actually thought the baby was an animatron. It turns out it's it's computer graphics. It's perfectly you know, integrated. I've seen that scene. movie, and I love that movie. It's one of the best yeah. movies I've seen in years, actually. And Absolutely. I, the, I, I, never, I, I agree with yeah. you. I never for a moment considered that the baby might be some kind of CGI effect. I just said, okay, that they had a baby acting no, role. Yeah, no, no. It, it, I thought it was an animatronic baby, actually. The minute I saw the way it moved, I figured it was a Stan Winston creation. And, and it wasn't. It was apparently CG. There's a there's a special on the, the DVD. There's like a little documentary thing that discusses how they did it. So the point being that at, you know if it doesn't happen in front of you, well, then you have every reason not to believe it. But even what you're saying, Mac, is that here it is happening in front of a lot of people. And even though it's a visual event, it seems to be very real, very material, you're saying there's a possibility that it wasn't. I'm just speculating that if we've got some sort of some sort of um, very alien intelligence interacting with, with with people, and it's capable of conjuring, for lack of a better word, you know, illusions, then the whole point of that illusion would be to convince people of the physicality of it. And so who's to draw the line? You know, how big that illusion can be, or how convincing, or to how many people it, it's con- it can be convincing. Would it be something that they were so alien? we might be too frightened to see them as they really are or as a protective mechanism where they masquerade as something else so we aren't 
looking at what they're really doing. They're drawing our attention away from the actual event. So we see the sighting. It looks like a physical craft, but something else is going on elsewhere that we don't know about. Yeah, it could be a diversion. It could be a diversion from something not even taking place there. We know so little about consciousness. You know, I think we're learning more. Uh, I think think we're making some strides, but we know so very little about what its role is and how and how it works in large groups of people that that uh, I don't know I guess you could say I'm open to more op- open to s- some weird weird ideas regarding you know what perception is and, and what's possible and, and how you can and how it's able to be fooled on a mass scale well then we and, can even what, go to the things like the Fatima yeah. event okay the Fatima event involving obviously a religious experience but what was it really Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you got the, a really good chapter on that in uh, in Jacques Vallée's Dimensions, where he he expressly points out that it's got dimensions of a religious event and it's got classical dimensions of a UFO event, all wrapped up into one very psychedelic episode, where you've got the spinning globes in the air. You've got, but at the same time, you've got this religious import behind behind the whole thing. That to me is very suggestive of some sort of long term uh, social engineering project on behalf of some intelligence that we don't properly understand and maybe that intelligence is is young's collective unconscious you know i mean maybe it doesn't necessarily beg for for aliens whatever alien might might mean in this in this context well the, the problem with all of us mac is that it seems like to talk about anything in this field one is pushed towards taking a polarized view either you're a believer in the space brothers or you're not in, in that context i had heard that at the recent ufo congress uh, circus in um in vegas that i guess david jacobs got up and started talking about abductions in a negative light and um big there Well, but apparently most of the audience walked out of his presentation. Let's do this for the second half of the show. So we'll be back. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We'll be back in a moment with Mac Tonys. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're back with Mac Tonys on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're talking about, well, in part, we're talking about what the UFO might be caused by. And are we seeing, are we perceiving the phenomenon as it really is? Or are they responsible for misdirection? I think of the movie Contact, of course, where the character played by Jodie Foster sees the alien in the form of her dead father. Because that's an area they can communicate with her in a way that she would understand and feel comfortable with. She deduced that that was an illusion, that she was not actually dealing with her dead father. So that's a critical difference there in the movie. And you get abductees that see dead relatives. That's something that actually apparently occurs, at least on some level. And they actually think it is the spirits of of their dead relatives. So they're being—they're either being fooled, or they're—they're or they're actually seeing—they're uh, actually seeing spirit entities of some sort. But Jodie Foster's character knew. In fact, there's a line in that movie where she says, "This isn't real," you know, and he says, "That's my scientist." He even congratulates her for seeing through the delusion. So does that then presume that the only way humans can deal with reality is to have it sugarcoated and fantasy and nonsense? That seems to me to be something that we see more and more every day in this in, on this planet. That faced with an act actual real tangible truth people seem to default to wanting the nonsensical version of the truth what is that why do humans behave that way so often you're asking me yeah 
<laughs> you're the guest, man. That's right. You're the expert. You know everything. Tell us. Well, that's a big one. I don't know. I wish I knew because I'm, yeah. I'm trying to go about curing this this condition of collective this psychosis, which is essentially what it is. But all I can do is acknowledge that, yeah, I agree with you. We do seem unable to deal with harsh realities unless unless they're, well, global warming, for example. That's that's one. It's a phenomenon that's undeniably happening, uh, but yet people still like to conveniently view it as some sort of uh, quasi-political controversy. They don't like to deal with it as, as, a, as a harsh geophysical reality. They want to deal with it as, as something they can debate, when in fact it's you know, it, it's it's happening. There's no doubt about that. So that's just one example. It just seems that given the technological sophistication, or I should say the relative level of technological sophistication of our species at this time, our intellectual evolution has not kept pace. And, and I, I just, it, it stuns me to think that at a time when here we are, we've gotten a vehicle out of the solar system, we've landed on our local uh, moon, even though a lot of people still debate whether or not NASA got to the moon, which just makes me laugh. Talk about delusion. I mean, yeah, just, just it's just crazy stuff. Given all of this stuff that's still going on, there's still some vast swath of the population that believes that if there's something that created this whole universe, that it looks like us. Human vanity seems to know no bounds. It, it's... It's a real eye-opener, and it also makes me think, though, that if indeed there was some sort of an intelligent extraterrestrial presence visiting the planet, that they'd have no desire to have open communications with us. It, that, it would, that would almost be something that they would laugh at, say, well, what could we possibly gain? Uh, maybe if aliens did initiate some sort of open contact, maybe we should properly be pretty skeptical of it, at least you know, on face value. Mm-hmm. Like that Twilight Zone episode, for man. Oh, no, to serve man. It's a <laughs> Maybe the phenomenon uh, you're talking about, you know, this kind of intellectual paralysis, that, you know, that we just don't seem to be, don't seem to be coping very well. Uh, maybe the whole UFO phenomenon, whatever its origin, and you know, regardless of where it comes from, what, where, from where it emanates, from from us somehow, or from some sort of exter- external reality imposing visions on us. Maybe the ultimate point is to is to hasten our intellectual development, or by uh, shaking things up, you know, by introducing this this extremely wild variable that that simply doesn't doesn't conform to any of our prejudices at all at all. What would be the motivation though? Why do you think some intelligent in force time, do that? Well maybe maybe in time by Re- revising our cherished ideas about you know what what quote unquote skepticism is and by and by by challenging us on on epistemological issues like this, we could grow to a point where we're intellectually mature enough that we could deal with an authentic an authentic contact experience. Do you think that will happen in our lifetimes, Mac? Probably not. Probably not. I'm kind of thinking in more uh, Olaf Stapledon terms, I guess. I think I'm thinking something that would, some sort of um, process that's, that's, well, if you look at human history, we've got forms of this, of this kind of archetypal uh, contact experience going back through folklore for thousands of years, sure. you know, possibly more. So who's to, who's to proclaim that, you know, this is going to end sometime soon? It could go on for thousands of more years before we know the truth. If we know the truth, maybe it will never reveal itself. 
maybe that's not the point. Maybe maybe the whole notion of expecting it to reveal itself at some definite point in the future is utterly ridiculous. You know, Ray Palmer once said, and of course we all know who Ray Palmer was. He was one of the founders of Fate magazine. He edited amazing stories in the 1940s and got hell because of the fact that he brought the Shaver mystery to light. But he made a comment back in the 60s and 70s that flying saucers were here to make us think. What were they here to make us think about? Hmm. That's a good one. And I would argue that they're here to make us, I'm not even sure think is the right word. He's on the right track. But perhaps it's more subtle than that. Maybe it's engineering our, our very perceptual acumen, you know, for lack of a better term. Maybe it's more subtle than merely merely thinking. Maybe it's to kind of re-engineer our collective unconscious to appeal to our mythological sense. I was just talking to someone yesterday about about Campbell and his, his series on the role of mythology. And he, he concluded that our current era is bereft of any mythology that we've kind of outgrown the need for mythology which I think is patently wrong and I think that the alien slash UFO phenomenon fulfills that role. It doesn't mean that that UFOs and aliens aren't real but I think we're definitely seeing an ongoing mythology we've seen a developing narrative over the last 50-60 years and uh, these aliens are taking a form that can be traced to various authors and researchers projecting their own expectations expectations on. Maybe they read those authors through his works to find out. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one eight 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 ufo maga or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next.
This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking now, or speculating, or wondering about some of the possible causes behind UFOs with author Mac Tonys. And I wonder about that. <laughs> Are the aliens reading John Keel or Donald Kehoe? Why do things always seem to come in the way that we have been grown to expect them? You know, we well, see gray aliens, and therefore they must be gray aliens. Well, something that is even stranger that that's always struck me as very odd about the UFO phenomenon is over the years, the vast array of different types of craft described and photographed is just bizarre. When you look at the disc stuff, I mean, every variation you could possibly think up has been seen by somebody. That always has struck me as just very odd. And it's one of the things that I just I can't explain it. What do you think about that, Mac? Well, if we're dealing with physical aliens from wherever, then they've got this huge arsenal of craft. They've got, all, like you said, every conceivable variation flying around at one point in history or another. Yeah, I'm incredulous, too. I share your skepticism on that. To me, this, that argues the proliferation of, of designs suggests to me that we're dealing with something more visionary in nature. And again, by visionary, I'm not I'm not saying hallucinatory, you know. Although, if it is hallucinatory, then it's in, I, I would argue that it's induced by something, by something real in, ex, in the external sense. So, yeah, that falls into to the whole subterfuge angle uh, or the psychosocial engineering project that Jacques Vallée alludes to. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a mystery. It's one of those paradoxes that, you know, it offers this way in which people can refer to it as a nuts and bolts physical phenomenon as well as a visionary phenomenon with perhaps equal validity. They can talk about, you know, talk about it in aerospace terms where, you know, well, there's all these different crafts and they're from various civilizations and some are scout ships and some, some perform other functions, therefore they look different. And at the same time, people like a little closer to home to John Mack and people like that, John Keel, can speculate that, well, we're seeing something we're creating in a sense in kind of a, in kind of a weird postmodern way. And uh, in both ways, importantly, allow for the existence of an overriding intelligence that's non-human. Yeah, if I had an answer to that, I'd be... I'd be uh, you wouldn't be happy. talking to us, probably. <laughs> hey, I might be know. one of them. If I had an answer to that, I might be one of them. <laughs> and it would be a documentary that you'd be making, not a book. You wouldn't be writing a book. You'd be making a documentary because we're so much more visual than we are text-based as creatures. And maybe that's part of the answer. Maybe the yeah. fact that we are such visual creatures is why there is such a heavy tendency on visual manifestations of the stuff versus, for example, what we know about the ghost experience, which to a good extent is often not a visual experience, but is one of smell, of temperature, of sound. It seems like, like ghost experiences tend to fall into those categories much more than the visual manifestation. You got a good of, point there. What do you think? Well, I, I was just going to say, we're so enamored of words in our current age. And William S. Burroughs had the, you know, the quote, the language is a virus, you know, we need to rub out the word. That, yeah. the word. Oh, yeah. And uh, maybe he was on to something. Maybe words have kind of hijacked our consciousness. You know, they serve a definite function. You know, they're useful to us, but maybe they become too dominant. And maybe maybe this phenomenon is a way of trying to kind of rouse us out of this uh, lexicographically induced stupor. <laughs> And maybe it's trying to kind of reawaken more visionary, uh, sensual modes of experience. Well, that leads us... For whatever reason. Right. And and I'm always looking, and when we talk about this stuff on the show, and I always tell Gene, I'm 
I'm most interested in motivation, trying to understand motives for these things, looking at meta level beyond just the actual symptomatic manifestation, like what is it that's really behind this? And, and something that you see a lot in the contact T cases is this constant, perpetually present message of you're killing the planet, you have to save the planet, you have to stop what you're doing to the planet. And it makes me think about your ideas about the crypto-terrestrial possibility. Because if there was another species or culture on this planet coexisting here with us in some sort of an invisible way, but if they were indeed here, then to me that would make sense to explain their concern about the state of the planet. Um, because if we screw the planet up for ourselves, and potentially we screw it up for them as well. Right. That's an idea that, that I'm, I'm drawn to. I think it would make a great deal of sense. You mentioned the contactees, and it's and we we're talking about talking about you know words and, and visions and, and how this is, seems to be primarily a visual experience. It's interesting to note that the contactees talked about aliens that were not only very human looking but they're pretty candid and very chatty. They talked a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, the grays are more ambiguous and silent. You know going about people get impressions and if they if they talk it's kind of cryptic and telepathic and you know and uh, they're not nearly as as forthcoming as the aliens of the contactees were well those in those days of course they came here and they spoke in perfect english telling us that we've got to clean up our acts and stop building nuclear weapons it was all a pitch a pitch yeah, for us what, to straighten really our ways. Changed. It was all copied from the movie Day the Earth Stood Still, actually. Oh, very much so. But what's really changed? Because, I mean, you read uh, Whitley Strieber, even, even Ben Hopkins, who some would argue it's kind of on the opposite end of the, end of the spectrum here. And we've got essentially this, some, some of the same things going on, only it's not so obvious. You've still got displays and, and messages of, of ecological catastrophe. You've still got that component. It's remained intact for, for many, many decades. You've got the whole warning to humanity the kind of you still have, it's, it seems to me it's the same in essence it's the same package it's just been retooled to appeal to a more sophisticated audience we're not ready for blonde Venusians anymore that's so 1950s and 60s now it's got to be gray aliens and maybe in another generation we'll have a different kind of alien or a different kind of source for that information right exactly it's evolving to fit cultural predispositions maybe and you know some of that can be attributed to uh, the authorship you know of human authorship but but uh, behind it all uh, I think that there is a, there's a, a psychedelic component to this that's yeah, that's a trigger and uh, and we kind of fill in the blanks using imagery at our disposal when it comes to when it comes to that well yes when you use that word psychedelic people say ah this guy's talking about LSD <laughs> Yeah, or more likely point. DMT, actually. Yeah, or DMT. No, when I say my use, when I'm using at least at least in the context of this show, I use this word psychedelic. I'm just referring to. I guess I use it because I'm uncomfortable with the word psychic. Sometimes I'm referring to visionary. I guess is what is what I'm talking about. But I'm equally uncomfortable with, with that word because it 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 has this this would be ring to it. Like right. it's all just everyone's just hallucinating. Everyone's just. But yeah, I'm not talking about uh, psychedelic substances. I'm just talking about the the cognitive impact, the way in which 
it, the way in which it impacts its audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, but we're also dealing with the fact that our brain produces so many of the chemicals that we consider to be quote-unquote psychedelic drugs. Our brains are capable of not only interacting with these chemicals, but creating them. So that that's always, I, I've always found that of tremendous interest, and especially when you start talking about things like shamans and people who are using meditative states to expand their consciousness. We're talking about an innate ability of the brain, that the brain can hallucinate. I mean, well, just don't sleep for three days and you'll find out all about hallucinations. <laughs> um, we want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We are talking with Mac Tonys, speculating about possible origins for UFOs. And certainly, as you say, it doesn't require external medications, drugs, whatever, in order to cause you to hallucinate. Assuming you are hallucinating, of course. Well, it can be a true hallucination, as Terrence McKenna speculated, in the sense that yeah, it's something real, but it's taking it's taking a visionary form in order to communicate. And again, you get back to this sugarcoating part, this sugar, this idea that we can't handle the the literal truth because perhaps our brain's architecture simply wouldn't support it. It'd be like trying trying to run. Well, on my laptop, I tried to run Second Life a couple months ago, and I couldn't because it didn't have a sufficient graphics card. <laughs> so maybe it's a similar situation with uh, the UFO intelligence and and our minds. Perhaps we simply don't have the hardware. The requisite uh, bandwidth to deal with uh, the reality of it so we we settle for second best because it's the best we can do well of course that also assumes that whatever force is behind this is telling us or trying to communicate with us what they really are and what their purpose is and not deceiving us and we get back to the question of deception right we've been kind of assuming for the last hour that that that, uh, the beings are, are benevolent but you're right they might not be perhaps they are trying to deceive us for purposes that are more selfish I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to the idea that, that they're essentially not altruistic, but not here to do us any harm, because I, if they wanted to, oh, I don't know, eat us in, in, in classic David Icke format or something like that, you know, mm. what's stopping them? Uh, it seems to me we'd be easy prey. We're very easily distracted, as, as we talked about earlier. We're very uh, uh, blinkered and very eager to distract ourselves and... and uh, instead of confronting confronting genuine unknowns. So, you know, what's stopping them from, from taking us over if they wanted? And, and for that matter, if they're, if they're physical extraterrestrial aliens and, and fantastically advanced vehicles, you know, why are they waiting? You know, what are they waiting for? As far as, a, as far, you know, are they waiting for a fair fight? You know? No, they, maybe. They could have taken over years and years and years ago. And it would well, have been over within an hour. Here's a, here's a theory that I just thought of a second ago. Maybe it's something far odder than that. Maybe there's some kind of a interplanetary protocol that says you can't take over a planet, but you're more than uh, willing to stick around and wait until the, in, the the actual life on the planet screws itself up so bad that uh, either they're not there anymore or 
they'll welcome you coming in and taking over the planet because they'll need such assistance at that point, such high levels of it, that uh, that they'll they'll welcome you with open arms. Maybe indeed, what's going on is that these creatures are letting us destroy ourselves. It's so much easier. Uh, well, in that than, case, how do you explain the, the appeals to stop using nuclear weapons and, and, uh, and environmental toxins that abductees report? That well, seems to kind of contradict it. That would contradict it, right? Um, well, maybe this is all set up so that it looks more real to us. That So that we... Maybe all of this is contrived, guys. Maybe, indeed, that's part of the plan, to basically set up a situation where we can't figure out what's going on because we have different messages coming from two different sides. And certainly, if nothing else, one of the things that I'll say about every human on this planet, boy, are we easy to confuse. I mean, you said it before, Mac. It's so easy to distract us. A few colored blinking lights, and we're like, oh, oh look at that. <laughs> um, yeah, at that point, you know, what if we're talking about a species that um, was maybe physically not as strong as we are, maybe not as reckless as we are, maybe not as willing you know, to die in the heat of battle as we are. You know what they say? sound like great people i want to meet them well yeah no they sound like they'd be fun to hang out with um oh yes yeah. so we can you know hang out have a couple of yeah. drinks well you don't some... want to know what they drink oh no 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 oh that's like back to the um that romulan ale okay romulan well, no ale. no 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 more ridiculous than that and this has got to be bizarro episode gene because i'm making the movie references this time you aren't no that <laughs> original uh, alienation thing where they got drunk drinking uh what sour, was it? Milk. sour milk yeah <laughs> So I've met some Polish people that get pretty messed up on sour milk as well. So I wonder what that means. But no, ultimately, and that's maybe the worst Polish joke of all. What? Uh, well, no, I can think of worse jokes. As my last name is the Polish word for poor, I know all about Polish jokes. But no, I mean, ultimately, we're our own worst enemy. So if a if a species wanted to take us over, I think they would just like sit back and watch us do the damage to ourselves. It probably is more entertaining. In fact, maybe, and I've said this on the show before, and I'll say it again, maybe the trials and tribulations of humanity are the most popular reality entertainment show in the galaxy. And maybe that's what we have with all of these different craft. Maybe what we've got are different species coming here to do product placement. Well, think of it this way, though. Do we really think we're that important? Sure we do. Don't you remember the creature that made the whole universe looks just like us? Come on. Well, we assume the aliens look like us, and we don't know that. You know, we should really focus a little tighter here on the theory that we mentioned when we had you on before, Mac, which is that the aliens are not aliens so much as other beings who share this particular earthly real estate with us. Right. Essentially humanoid, you know. Sure. Right. Now, let's kind of recapture this a little bit because rather than have people play the whole show which we want them to do but this will of course entice them to want to hear the previous show you were on and there's what is the path here from et to crypto terrestrial the path in like how i how i kind of got turned on to the idea sure yeah well i just started noticing how how i I didn't think that the uh the sightings of of ufos from the 1940s on and uh, coupled with the with the folkloric references going back for many many hundreds of years didn't seem to suggest to me that we're dealing with 
with aliens because, I mean, our own technological abilities seem to be eclipsing those of the aliens. And that seems highly unlikely. It seems highly, highly unlikely that aliens would be using such clumsy methods uh, that seem more designed for show than anything else, at least superficially. At the same time, uh, Jacques Vallée had tried to account for this in, in a number of, of really good books. And John Keel had come up with similar explanations, but both of them kind of relied on a, a paranormal origin for the for the aliens. So I just wondered, well, you know, why must they come from multiple, from parallel universes or or from some other level of reality? Is it possible that this planet is inhabited by a flesh and blood species that simply kind of took a different fork down the road at some point in our prehistory and is very adept and adroit at manipulating our perceptions? Are we also and, talking here about Richard Shaver's Deros and Tiros? Well, it, not, 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 not specifically, because I don't think that his accounts are, are, are remotely factual. But the theme, he, the, the theme he struck there is actually kind of, kind of similar. Not, not, I'm not claiming that the Earth is hollow, but uh, certainly there is a lot of uh, real estate here right on this planet that we don't know that much about. And it could entirely be uh, home to, to, to beings that are hiding out and relying on their ability to misdirect us to enable them to live virtually alongside us at the same time that they're uh, waging some sort of the equivalent of some sort of psychological operations tactics on us. So that's 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 the crypto terrestrial idea in a nutshell. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen. Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Mac Tonys, and we're speculating in areas of the UFO business that maybe you haven't heard too much before. Maybe you should, because so many other discussions are basically stuck in one place, which is E.T., and we're saying maybe is isn't E.T., maybe it's something else. David. Well, I have to tell you, Mac, I've thought a lot about your crypto... Th- terrestrial thoughts and the more that i think about it the more likely it seems to me that you're really onto something here from so many different points of view and looking at the reports of abductees and looking at oh just everything 
about UFOs, it, it, it seems to me like what is going on here is indeed very deceptive. But that makes me wonder, if indeed we have this species alongside the planet with us, is it that they're in the same physical dimension that we are and they're yeah. basic i mean is that is that what you're thinking yeah that's kind of the appeal of the theory at least to me that they could they could inhabit the same dimensional space as, as we are they're just existing in seclusion you know and i readily admit that it's kind of a thought experiment at that point but at the same time it's at least potentially testable and that's also an appealing aspect it seems like because if they can scurry off to an alternate reality of whatever sort, then we're never going to be able to really pinpoint this. If that's the case, then that's that's, that's fine. But but if they do live here on Earth and you know perhaps underground, perhaps under bodies of water, and there are numerous signs of UFOs above and above and beneath bodies of water, that would right. kind of bolster that that general argument. I think I think that's I think that's suggestive at the very least. Wouldn't we technologically have been able to determine their existence even underground or under the oceans if that were the case well if these beings have have the have this quote-unquote special effects ability that they seem to have and have seemed to possess since at least the 1940s then maybe not you know maybe they could maybe they're they seem very accomplished illusionists and i don't think that should be underrated maybe maybe they're just really damn good at leading us off the path and but does, setting, up, setting up enough smoke screen and engineering enough enough memes to, to send us off looking at all the wrong areas like you mentioned Heineck and immediately concluding that you know we're dealing with spaceships you know that was kind of a conviction early on in the, in the modern UFO game and I mean we've only been exploring our planet in any detail only in contemporary history I mean for the longest sure. time we were pretty you know we were we didn't have Sat global satellites and, and things like this. We were confined to the small, isolated portions of the Earth, and uh, that might have been a preferable situation from the perspective of these, you know, theoretical crypto terrestrial beings. Well, I think it's really compelling in that people don't understand that there are large areas of land on the Earth where human eyes basically don't go for the most part. Um, I've been very interested in the Canaima region of Venezuela, which is to the um, southeast part of the, of the of that country. And this is where the Angel Falls are located. There is some of the oldest Precambrian rock formations are, are there, these mezzas that are just incredibly well, beautiful. But also on top of some of these formations, there are chunks of land that no human has ever seen. The reason I bring this up is that the Canaima region is uh, one of the most important hotspots for UFO activity in South America. There are major reports that have come out of there pretty much every year, any year you want to choose since the 50s. There have been major reports, and again, this is something that is not even for the most part on the radar of most ufologists here in the United States, um, just because so much of the material about this region has never made it into the English language. And, and so you have this area where it is very desolate. It's just unlikely that people are, are going to be in any significant quantity in that part of the world, just because of how absolutely far away it is from everything and it seems to me like that does support the idea that yeah you could have a, a species that was here that was inhabiting parts of the planet that we just don't get to very much for yeah, any number of reasons take, it would only take a few large underground installations just a handful hmm. 
to accommodate the, the, the phenomenon as, as I think we're seeing it. Of course, I mean, the problem there, well, well, then you run into the theory, the conspiracy theorists who say, well, that's, uh, you know, that explains the, uh, the Dulce uh, uh, compound, and that, that would support right. you guys talking about these creatures interacting with the military, with these massive underground bases, which, honestly, I've always found to be pretty out there as far as claim, a claim. I, I, I don't. I don't They're know what out think there, and the theory does rub shoulders with the whole kind of mythos that developed in the 1980s after the MJ-12 documents, and uh, that's not really what I'm getting at. I think I, I'm talking about a species that probably is secluded, and it's probably nothing formal to do with, with humans, as far as, you know, like a working relationship. I, I'm very wary of those claims as well. But yeah, like, like the Venezuela signings you refer to, I mean, that's, that's, mm -hmm. that would be a, a very good candidate example of uh, crypt, the crypto-terrestrial idea. Do you think that that um, there's any way that we can, I guess part of what we try to do on this show is to take stuff that we feel is less than probable or less than likely and, and sort of move it out of the way. Do you think that there's a possibility that somebody could come to you and say, all right, I've come to the conclusion that the crypto terrestrial hypothesis is silly and here's why. Is there one thing that you can think of? And I guess what I'm asking you is, have you played devil's advocate with this idea yourself. Yeah, and, and one weakness would be the lack of fossil evidence. Mm -hmm. On one hand, that uh, that's troubling, but on the other hand, we... You know, we know so little about our own line. I mean, we, we have we have a good idea, but as far as details are concerned, and and given my speculation, you know, admittedly speculation that these beings are predominantly humanoid, you know, not not terribly unlike us, then perhaps it's not terribly surprising that we haven't found, you know undeniable fossil evidence of some sort of divergent line somewhere in the past. Well, could they just walk among us and we wouldn't notice? Well, there's another there. option, yeah. They could be so close to us that, we, that there would be no, there'd be no uh, fossil evidence of that sort to be found anyway because they'd, they'd be essentially human. Well, we have to say I do not believe, ladies and gentlemen, that the occupant in the White House is a crypto-terrestrial. <laughs> the sound God. of silence. That was bad. Well, I was waiting for something more. I, I like that line of reasoning. <laughs> no, I think I think he's one of us. I think he's all, all too much one of us. Well, yeah, I, I'd prefer it. I'd prefer it if he was a crypto terrestrial. I'd prefer. I'd be, uh, I like uh, that's David Icke's appeal. Uh, you know, his uh, purported you know, evil people are all turned out to be uh, interdimensional lizards. lizards. You know, I like that idea. It would make me feel a lot better about the human race. But didn't he just pick that up from the show V? I mean, they were lizards that, as I remember that show, mm -hmm. they were they were lizard people. That's right. Oh, they yeah, masqueraded he, as humans. And he actually advises people. To, he, he cites V as more or less a reference. Oh. He advises people to watch it because that exposes the, you know, helps expose the truth as he perceives it. Well, I see. of course. All right. V as a documentary. Yeah. Okay. See, this is where, I, personally, I just get so frustrated by the fact that when you try to have discussions about this stuff, our own cultural conditioning floods right in, and um, people have to make the obligatory references to Little Green Men, or the, the Day the Earth Stood Still, or Star Trek. And I understand that human beings, the way that we approach our analytical thinking is to have categories that we plop things into, but it seems to me like in discussing this topic, 
that the only way we're ever going to get any understanding going here, maybe it's not even possible, but we have to sort of strip away the preconditioning that we have from our own cultural context. Mac, do you think that's even possible? I'll tell you what, Mac, before you answer that question. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Mac Tony, speculating about possible alternative sources for the origin of UFOs. So, Mac, I'll repeat the question. Is it possible? It's possible, perhaps, only if we manage to redefine who we are as, as, a, as a people and as a culture and as a, as a planet. That's probably not going to happen anytime soon, sadly. Mm -hmm. I think opening up space exploration and space colonization, uh, as we seem to be doing in a very tentative way right now, is a sign for hope, a sign of hope. I think uh, if we continue to reach out and escape the confines of this planet, I think that will gain some much-needed perspective, and that's probably a vital first step. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen overnight. If at all. I mean, if as at all. Yeah, it might, it might never happen. We might never muster the, uh, the savvy and the, and the foresight to, to do that. And uh, that, that's pretty sad, but there it is. Well, do you ever think here that maybe being drawn to outer space, as I suspect we are, simply by discovering the possibility of water pouring on the surface of Mars, Earth-like planets and other star systems, we're being drawn out there, my friend. Whether it's oh, yeah, just definitely. the nature of the beast or we're being helped along, we're being drawn out there. Eventually, we're going to have to exploit resources in outer space if we're to survive as a species. It's that simple. I mean, it, that's, uh, I'm pretty convinced, convinced of that. And uh, it hasn't, we haven't reached that point where it seems all that dire and immediate. But uh, in 40 years, I think it, I think it will. I think, well, yeah. Uh, I think I think space exploration and, and mining, mining asteroids and, and mining helium three on the moon will all it will probably be uh, comparable to the to the uh, the global warming issue is right now in the environmental media. At some point, we're going to run out of dinosaur goo, and we're going to need something else. And it looks like things like hydrogen and methane are just, you know, well, certainly hydrogen's all over the place, but, you know, we're finding what looks like lakes of methane on moons around planets on our in our system. So it, uh, it seems like it only makes sense to get the resources from where we can. Of course, at that point, does that then imply that we're going to start moving off the planet, or are we just going to be bringing stuff back here? Right. Hopefully, both. You know, I, I think we can. I think we can have both. In fact, I think uh, the resources in space will help us enable will enable us to to make Earth more more uh, tolerable, more livable. And at the same time, it offers us the possibility of of moving considerable numbers of people over over a very long period of time, of course, into into space. And in that process, we become a multi-planet species, and then it helps ensure that we're not going to be well. Our, all our eggs aren't going to going to be in one basket anymore. Yeah. If we have if we have a, you know a, a robust colony on the moon or Mars or both, 
which is not at all unthinkable at this point anyway, then, then that, you know, we're, we're, we're more durable, we're more tenacious. Well, it's a very noble view of mankind. I wonder how realistic it is. And, and I don't want to say that. I want to, I want to be optimistic. Well, but it's noble, but I don't think we'll be doing it for noble reasons. We're going to be doing it out of kind of innate territoriality. But it serves an ultimately noble purpose, even if that's not what we had in mind when we started when we started out, you know, going going to going to Mars. Like it's pretty clear right now that we're doing this to beat the Chinese and stake out our territory. You know, mm-hmm. so we don't get uh, we don't get bumped off the off the map and when when this this kind of thing starts heating up in the near future. Competition is useful. That's how we got to the moon. It was all based on the strong competitive sense that we had to get there before the Russians. Right, right. They, they made it sound like it was this big noble endeavor. You know, we're doing it because we can, because it's hard. That wasn't why we were doing it at all. So, yeah, competition is useful. And, you know, I say harness it for what it's worth. But ultimately, and again, I'm bringing up all the movie references today, Gene. You're, you're, you're not on the ball today, man. This, today I decided that you were doing so well at the job oh, yeah. of bringing I up sure movie references yeah, yeah, yeah. that I would uh-huh. just let you do it. I give you a chance, you know. I, I don't want to hog yeah. the movie references for myself. Okay. No, I'm definitely grabbing them all today. But in the movie Blade Runner, you've got all of, you know, basically the off-planet colonization has taken most of the interesting life away from the Earth. That's sort right. of the scenario painted there. And there have been a number of movies that have dealt with that. And I wonder about that. I wonder if, if we got off the planet, would people really, at that point, want to create a max, mass exodus with the idea that, well, okay, the, the Earth is used up, we've poisoned the water. I mean, God knows if you were in China right now, living in, in, you know, in any of the areas where all of those plastic factories that make all of our cheap junk are located, you'd really want to get off the planet, the, the freshwater situation in those. Well, imagine being in China in 2040, and uh, I, think, oh, man. I think most people would, be, would welcome the opportunity to work in some uh, off-world colony as crowded and, and as dismal yeah. as that existence might be, because it's going to be even worse in, in mainland China, it, it, you can't. You almost can't imagine it. I mean, it's really bad now to to think. Yeah, to twenty forty. I mean, at that point, where will there be any decent drinkable water anywhere there? I mean, it's just it. It's a nightmare. And I think this is another point that it's so important to make that you know we live. Certainly, the the three of us are living in the United States in this civil in this culture where we don't think about the impact of our lifestyle on the rest of the world. We pay lip service to it. But we don't really think about it. And I think the part of the problem is that most Americans don't travel around the world. Or if they do, they go to places that are like home. You know, they go to Paris or they go to London. They go to, or, you know, or they'll go to places where, oh, they go to they speak Hard Rock Cafe. Exactly. Or McDonald's. They will or look Starbucks. for the place in Europe or wherever they're traveling that is closest to what they're familiar with in the USA. I got to tell you guys, a friend of mine, his his 18 year old son went to Europe for three and a half weeks last year. The kid didn't eat anything but McDonald's and Burger King the whole time. Ah, oh, I was mad. I was furious when he told me that. I'm like, what are you? Are you kidding me? He was in Amsterdam and all he ate was Burger King. I'm like, what are you? Are you joking? You didn't even go to like an Argentinian steakhouse there? He's like, no, no, no. I like those American hamburgers. And it's like, well, geez, no wonder. We don't have a clue what's going on in the rest of the world. We do really think that our way is the best way. Oh, my son's going to be spending a semester in Spain, but not in 
Barcelona, one of the larger cities, in some kind of country city with a family, and he's going to try to speak Spanish 100% of the time because Excellent. that's going to be one of the components of his degree. And he's going to try to live the way they live and see how, mm-hmm. how it is and try to stay away from the McDonald's, stay away from the Blimpy, stay away from the subway and all that stuff. And that's really good. Good for him. Good for him. You just wish that more Americans had a sense of curiosity about the world and would then understand that, yeah, it, it is one planet, we're all on it, and we're all in the same boat. Ultimately, that is our reality as a species. And but we should also enjoy other cultures. We shouldn't always have to impose our cultures on other countries. They oh, don't absolutely. all have to be like the USA. I mean, we oh. don't always have to have hamburgers. We don't always have to have french fries. I, I don't like hamburgers, and french fries are okay, but you know when you go to Amsterdam, then you dip the fries in gravy and you realize that they're on to something. <laughs> you are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. I hope we're on to something with Mac Tonys. We're talking about alternative theories for UFO origin to account for some of the elements that the ETH, or extraterrestrial hypothesis, does not consider. I've always wondered about that myself. And when I started talking about this, and of course, one of our previous guests, Alan Greenfield, and I talked about this many, many years ago. And the thing we wondered is, heck, the visit whatever they are, have been with us since the dawn of recorded history. There have been interactions with other species, other races, advanced intelligences, whatever. I mean, if they were from some other planet, if they were from the star system Libra or whatever, and they're coming here, there'd be an awful lot of them. You know, I can think of all the... Are they using local resources? Will they have enough fuel to stay here for 10,000 years? What's going on? Well, I'd imagine if they're extraterrestrial, they'd have all the, all the resources they could they can meet. Getting back to kind of current astronomical findings, we're kind of finding that the uh, 
that space is not so cleanly delineated between your your comets in the outer solar system and then outer space is, you know, the interstellar gulf. It's actually kind of a slurry of comets littering away. So this is assuming that technology is pretty similar to our own. You could kind of hop your way across interstellar space and refuel along the way. You're not on your own after all. And, uh, well, I personally think that that's, if we're being visited by extraterrestrials, then, uh, then they're probably using some sort of exotic physics. That's a relative term, but they're using, they're using something other than conventional, you know, rocket chemistry. But even if you were using conventional rocket chemistry and traveling at sublight speeds over, you know, a long period of time, you could do it. We could do it, you know, in, in 200 years if we were allowed, you know, a steady rate of, of technological development. So that, that's, a, that's a hopeful sign. You, you can't really think so? Glue. You, really th- you, you really think that's the case, Mac? I mean, 200 years, you think that we could if get we to wanted the start? To, I, should, I should qualify with that. If we wanted to, if that, if that was, a, if that was a, something that collectively that we attached a lot of importance to. Sadly, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be now, but that could, you know, that could change. We're, we've entered such a period of rapid growth that it makes me wonder, you know, how recognizable the future of even 200 years from now, which doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, you, know, you get this, you get this law of exponentiating returns, and, and sure. granted, it isn't a, it isn't a physical law, but nevertheless, it's it's held out pretty well over the last few decades. It might as well be, yeah, yeah, it might as well be. It's kind of a virtual law, and you know, if that holds up, and it very well might not be. I mean, there, 2001 is a perfect example. The the movie, you know, that was considered pretty much, well, you know, inevitable. And then, you know, the Vietnam War happened. So I think we're probably in for, you know, a great many conflicts that are going to derail us and make that the law of accelerating returns look look less than absolute. Well, certainly if these visitors are close by, sharing the space with us, they won't let us, will they, get into conflicts that could affect them? I don't know. It's, I, I've wondered about that, and I think maybe it's possibly a little bit too egotistical to think that aliens are that concerned about about us contaminating outer space. space well, maybe a- just our planet, if they're part of our world, they would be concerned that we could we could wreck things for them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And for them to correct measures to their satisfaction, they'd have to make open contact. And as, as, you, as you've said, that's, that appears to be the last thing they want to do. And I, and I agree with you. I don't think that they, I don't think they have any intention of, uh, of making open contact. Or if they did, they would do it in a way that... logical reasons sure. that would be a disaster. Or if they decide to make open contact, it could be in a form where we're being misdirected, which may have already happened, where we're led to believe it's coming from somewhere else. Right. I mean, why do we assume that the aliens who tell us they're from Zeta Reticuli are telling us the truth. Why do we believe them as being honest and forthright? Where does well, this come very from? Very little of what they said has turned out to be honest and forthright. They say they say things that amount to a little more than gibberish to take abduction accounts and, and uh, the accounts of channeled alien aliens. Well, they come in lucid dreams and they give us extraterrestrial science that <laughs> they give us pancakes. Oh in yes, case, I one notable case. Oh yes, I remember that. Joe yeah. Simonton. Mm-hmm, exactly. Joe Simonton yeah. years ago. This is back in the 1960s, <laughs> David. I, you probably haven't heard of the case. Pancakes. And, huh? Right, and they gave gave him something that seemed to be an overcooked pancake. But there's an interesting little addendum to that case. It turns out that in fairy folklore, there is a, they gave him, I think they were made out of potato, but I could be wrong there. But anyway, there's this, I think it's this 
Irish myth about about encounters with, with non-humans, in that case, whatever they were called at that time, the little, the little people, giving gifts of baked, well, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was basically the same thing that Joe Simonton received from his little strange visitors. Wait, wait a minute, what are you talking? They had latkes? <laughs> they, they, had, they gave the people latkes, interdimensional latkes that were green? Well, they were I overcooked, like that's the problem. No, they were green, they were Irish potato pancakes, that's luck, that's green latkes. Listen, Rabbi Biedney. What do you want, you shmechi? What? <laughs> We're talking to Mac Tony's here. He made a point about the fact that if they're aliens, they don't give a damn about uh, the peoples because the peoples have no capability to screw around with them in the outer space. You then turn it around to the crypto terrestrial thing, you gotta get your ducks in a line, booby. I don't know how he should answer Pure that. Sure, words never spoken. Actually, yes, there's a certain amount of wisdom in what he says. Sure, there is. Oh, God. We haven't figured out what that wisdom is, where it could be found, what planetary system, but there is wisdom to be found. The problem is here is what he's saying is just about as clear as some of the nonsense we've heard over the years <laughs> in the UFO field. You know that? Well, it sounds like something said by you, Fana. Yes. There you go. I think what we're going to find out is that when we get down to the bottom of this, if we do, uh, I think we're going to find that Max's thoughts about the sourcing of a lot of this being a terrestrial source, I think... Mac is going to end up being completely vindicated, and he's going to be seen as the well, guy. It's not, who knew it's not completely, you know, in the in the flesh and blood sense. Then, then maybe in the, in just the very general sense of the terrestrial origin, and and by that I simply mean, you know, if we're not dealing with with physical beings, you know, not unlike ourselves in in mm-hmm. some ways, then then we could still be dealing with some form of consciousness that originates on this planet. Right, but, it, I, but I'm being I'm being deliberately vague there because I oh, honestly no. don't know exactly what form what what this could take. But I, I'd like to think that we could figure it out given enough time. Well, we only have a few moments left, and I wanted to mention you're working on a book that's going to cover this subject. Where does that stand? When might we see it in print? Right now, it's it's actually mostly written. I, I'm in the assembly phase of, of getting this of this stuff that I've already written into coherent order, and that's actually a much harder task for me than actually writing fresh material. I find I can I can write endlessly once I get in the groove. So I need to get my nose to the grindstone and get this thing polished off, and at least the first draft ready, because I've already got the the bulk of it the bulk of it. Done written. Uh, as far as publication, it does have a publisher, but I don't know when it will be published at this point. But I would like to think uh, sooner rather than later. Please. And, uh, you know, whether it has any huge, huge impact on, on ufology, that's, that's it probably won't. I'm guessing it won't. But, you know, if it, if it arouses a few questions, then, then its purpose will be admirably served. So I am indeed working on it, albeit a little a little more slowly than I than uh, I had originally intended. Are you finding that trying to explore this possibility is becoming more complicated than you might have expected early on? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you find that there's all the kinds of questions that crop up with 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 a claim as as uh, bizarre as this one that that need to be addressed. And and frankly, I'm not going to address them all. I'm just going to kind of leave it as a as a as a thought experiment. So if I address them all, this thing's going to be a, you know a thousand pages. <laughs> it's not going to be that long. Book as I envision it. I'm going to get the the idea out there and and hopefully and hopefully kind of kind of reframe 
the debate in some interesting ways and see what I can do with that. But uh, the intention isn't to convince people right off the bat. You know, the, the intention is to just to kind of, if nothing else, demonstrate that the extraterrestrial dogma that we hear from the likes of, well, I'm not going to name any names, but I think everyone listening probably knows, knows who they are. Yes, we know the usual offenders. And they're not, I'm not saying they're bad people. They're just, uh, sure. It's just an idea that I think is, is given uh, undue credence. I don't think it's necessarily valid or validated by the evidence. If I can demonstrate that that's not the only alternative, despite popular preconceptions, then I'll be quite happy. Well, we'll be quite happy to see when that book comes out. And any time, have you come back on the Paracast to share a couple of hours with us to talk about a lot of stuff that isn't talked about as often as it should be. Well, I, I want to keep my nose to the grindstone, and uh, I like being on your show, so yeah, I'd be honored <laughs> anytime. Well, I wanted to just uh, really briefly thank you, Matt, because I find that your intellectual honesty and your curiosity and the objectivity you bring to this is, is phenomenal, and it's so desperately needed. You're one of the more reassuring voices in the fact that you don't claim to know all the answers. I personally, and I think here on the Paracast, we find that extremely refreshing, and we thank you. Well, if I ever do know the answers, I will make no bones about claiming that I know all the answers. So enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> all right. Give, give us a call if you get the answers. I'm going to be an absolute ass about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.